Good afternoon. Uh, it's great to be back with you guys. Um, as Pastor Kyle said, we're continuing this series looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And last week, if you remember, Daniel so beautifully and powerfully talked about Jesus' baptism. And the Baptist dunks Jesus under the water, and as he's coming up out of the water, it's like the heavens open up, and you hear the voice of God, the Father, declaring, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And right after you hear the voice of the Father, then you see the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove on Jesus. And it's just spectacular moment. But if you're like me, you look at a moment like that and you say, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And yes, Jesus is God, this is great, but Jesus is not like me, right? Like, Jesus is superhuman. Like, Jesus is more like Superman than he is me. It's as if Jesus is from another planet. So the things that he went through, yeah, I know he went through a lot, but he didn't go through them like I do. Like, he doesn't know what it's like to be here on the earth with earthly problems. Like, he, he was a special type of person. And of course, in, uh, in our theology, we know, yes, Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. But it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, right after this heavenly moment, as we keep reading the Gospel, we get a very earthly moment. In fact, Jesus is going to go through something that all of us go through. He is going to go through temptation. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Not only does Jesus go through temptation in the passage we're about to read, uh, he goes through it under difficult circumstances. Jesus in this passage is exhausted, Jesus is hungry, and Jesus is alone. He's isolated. Those are all very human experiences. Probably in the room right now, we could, we could all say yes probably to one of those. Some of you are hungry, I know. That's a, what time is it? It's not even dinner time yet. But some of you feel isolated in your life, and you know what that feels like to be alone. Some of you are just exhausted. You feel like you've been beat up by life. So on top of those things that Jesus feels, he is now being tempted. So the question we have to ask is, okay, what would Jesus do? Jesus was fully God. What would he do in a moment if he were in my shoes in a moment like I have, when I'm hungry, when I'm exhausted, when I'm isolated, when I'm being tempted, what would Jesus do? Well, this passage we're about to read tells us. And in Christ dealing with this, we see how we ourselves are to deal with it. So we're going to read Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And I just want to pause for a moment right here and to show you very quickly the emphasis that Luke is bringing out. Notice he mentions twice the Holy Spirit. He wants to make sure that we know that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, where is the Holy Spirit leading Jesus? Into the wilderness. And don't think... Um, This is a brutal, dangerous, 
for us. But this is, I wanted to pause here for a moment because it's important for us. Because the Holy Spirit right here is leading Jesus into hardship, not away from it. And for us, this is important because if you find yourself in a wilderness of sorts, it's very easy to believe I am outside of the will of God. This is not right. This is not where I should be. But in fact, maybe you are exactly where God wants you because he's doing a work in and through you. Okay, continuing on. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Okay, so this afternoon, I wanna ask three questions from this passage. Who is the tempter? What is the nature of temptation? And how can we battle it? That's where we're going this afternoon. Who is the tempter? That's first. We need to identify some of the characters in this story. First, we know this is about Jesus. Jesus, at this point in the story, is about 30 years old. He has just been baptized, but he has not yet started his public ministry. Led by the Spirit, as I said, into the wilderness. Who does he meet there? He meets the devil, is what the text tells us. You say, okay, who is that? And I know we live in a modern, progressive city. I know that this is the 21st century. And some of you may struggle with this idea, the supernatural or the demonic or the spiritual world. Some may say, hey, the devil, isn't that just like psychological projection? Or isn't evil just sociological or psychological? Certainly not spiritual. But what we see in the scriptures is that there is a very real spiritual reality all around us. And as Christians, we believe that God is a good, personal, supernatural being. The Bible also tells us that there is an evil, personal, supernatural being. Sometimes in scripture, he's called Satan. He's referred to here as the devil, um, but he's not presented in the Bible as a symbol. He's not presented as this metaphor for all the things that are broken in the world. He is the chief of a very real, powerful, and intelligent force of evil at work in the world. And I know you're like, this is Sunday afternoon. This is a lot <laughs> to talk about. And I know. 
But the reality is we have to understand what we're up against. Like for us to stick our heads in the sand and be like, I don't want to believe that, won't help us in a moment of temptation. He works to draw us away from God. He works to distract us. He works to destroy us. He works against the purposes of our good God. I love the way Oxford Don C.S. Lewis says it. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Or as probably more of us can relate to, the movie, The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. So we can fall into two, two ditches here. We can kind of stick our he heads in the sand or we can kind of say, no, 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 that stuff's all hocus pocus, it's just not real. Or we can have this, this um, we can excuse everything and say, everything is a devil. I, it wasn't me, <laughs> it was somebody else. The, those bad things out there, not me. But what we see in the scriptures is that there is a very real spiritual evil and we still have very real responsibility at the same time. So the enemy, that is the tempter in this passage, the devil. The second question we have to ask is, what is the nature of temptation? Notice with me in verse three, the devil said, if you are the son of God, and he's gonna repeat that same phrase in verse nine, Notice the nature of what he's tempting Jesus with. He's tempting him to abandon his God-given identity and abandon his God-given purpose. If you are the son of God. Remember what we learned last week. God the Father declaring over Jesus those beautiful words. You are my son. That is who you are and I am well pleased with you. That's who Jesus was. He had just heard it from heaven, and now what is Satan doing? He is trying to undermine the very thing that God just said. You sure about that? If you really are the son of God, which doubtful to me, why are you hungry? Because if God is your father and God loves you, wouldn't God feed you? Hmm. If you are God's son, why not show it by taking over right now? Why, why do all these little things in Galilee and Nazareth? And why go through the cross? All this seems unnecessary. If you are the son of God, just grab power right now. If you are the son of God, let's see some real power, Jesus. Throw yourself off the temple. Angels are gonna catch you. One fell swoop, everybody believes this whole thing's over. Do you see how subtle the temptation is? Jesus, yeah, I know what God said, but are you sure about that? And I know the path that God has laid out for you, but don't you think there are shortcuts that would be better? Satan takes the good works of God. He takes the good words of God. He takes the good gifts of God in our lives, and he begins to sow seeds of doubt, distrust, and cynicism. And this is exactly what he did in Genesis chapter three in the Garden of Eden, right? God had given them everything. He lived in paradise with one rule. 
And Satan comes on the scene and begins to sow seeds of doubt. Genesis 3.1, did God actually say? Satan puts a question mark where God has put a period. And that is often what the temptations look like in our lives. God has declared a promise. God has declared something in his word. God has spoken about our, our true identity as sons and daughters of God. And Satan just kind of shows up and he's like, are you sure about that? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, let's get real here. The devil is tempting Jesus to question his identity and abandon his purpose. He's trying to get Jesus to undermine the truths that God has spoken over him. And he does the same things with us. So let's look a little deeper at these temptations. The first thing Jesus is tempted with, and what we will be tempted with, is tempted to doubt God's good provision. We see that in verse 3 and 4. And here's the question. What was he actually tempting Jesus to do here that was wrong? What's wrong with getting a yeast roll if you're hungry? Right? Jesus, turn the bread into stone. You're hungry. Eat it. Like, what was Satan trying to accomplish? And what we see is that most of these temptations involve actually they're not pursuing bad things. They're actually, most of them are about pursuing good things in the wrong way or pursuing good things at the wrong time or pursuing good things with the wrong posture. Nothing wrong with bread. Bread's a good gift from God. Give us this day our daily bread, the Lord's prayer, manna from heaven. Those are good gifts. But what Satan is doing, he's saying, bread, yeah, it's good, right? You're hungry. Just indulge Jesus. You deserve this. Nothing wrong with it. But Jesus' response is clear. Physical needs are important. You're right. Bread is good. But it's not first. Loyalty to God is what is essential here. So yes, I'm nothing wrong with bread. I'm for bread. But I am for God first. You see, he was trying to use a good thing to draw Jesus away from the ultimate thing. And that's what he does in our lives. He's going to take the good gifts that we have, our job, our family, our money, our friends, and say, hey, why don't you just put a little too much attention, a little too much weight on those good things. Then those good things become God things, and all of a sudden, those God things begin enslaving us. They become burdens, not blessings, and that's temptation one. The second temptation is that Jesus was tempted to doubt God's way. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and he basically says, all this could be yours right this very moment. All the power, all the glory, all the authority over all the kingdoms of the world could be yours, Jesus, now. And then you don't have to go through the cross. I mean, come on. You don't got to go back to that small town that you're from. You don't got to do all this stuff with those 12 disciples. Those guys are losers. Just grab it now, Jesus. I'll give it to you. And just imagine with me all the good that actually could have come from that. Jesus in charge? Doesn't sound bad to me. Jesus ruling the world with peace and justice. Jesus ruling the world, bringing about flourishing for all people. Looks good on the surface. Jesus, why not skip all this suffering and let's just jump straight to the glory? 
But here's what's crazy. We know the end of the story. And the end of the story is that Jesus actually does have all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus really is the ruler of the world for, for all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus actually is in charge. But the way Jesus comes to that authority and that power and that glory is through suffering. He takes the road of selfless love. He takes the road of sacrificial service. And he says, this is what glory looks like in my kingdom. I know the, the way the world grabs power. I'm not taking it that way. My power, my glory, my authority comes through the cross. And honestly, we hear that same voice today. Satan tempting us. Hey, you know there's a much easier way. Why are you so intense about this whole Jesus thing? The whole narrow road, the whole take up your cross and follow me, this whole service and sacrifice bit, isn't it a little dated? Isn't it designed for pre-modern people? Can't we get the same results another way? It's nicer and tidier and easier and definitely no cross. But we, like Jesus, must do God's work God's way. We don't grab earthly power to accomplish God's purposes. God's kingdom has always come through service and sacrifice. It comes through the road of the cross. And Jesus says, Satan, you will not divert my attention from my purpose. And my purpose is the cross. The third temptation was the temptation to be recognized. Satan is now 0 for 2, if you're keeping score. He's 0 for 2, so he ups his game a little bit. He brings Jesus to the pin pinnacle of the temple and begins quoting Bible verses to him, which he should have known was a mistake. He says, Jesus, listen, just jump off. And guess what? You're going to force God's hand. You jump off. The scriptures say, look, they say that the angels will hold you up. And so you're going to do this miraculous sign. Everyone's going to see it. And they're all going to be like, whoa, Jesus, this is unbelievable. Great job. We're going to work. Everybody's going to worship you right now. Basically, the temptation here, that Satan is saying, Hey, Jesus, you really only amount to what others think of you. And right now, nobody knows about you. I, I maybe think you might be the son of God, but these people, they don't. So you need their applause. Your need, you need their approval. You need to prove it. So just jump off this temple. And Jesus, this was so much wisdom he says, you do not put the Lord God to the test. I will not force God's hand. In fact, the approval of my father, I know it. Yeah, you're trying to undermine it, but I don't need the approval of the crowds because I have the approval of my father. So I won't put him to the test. I know what he's about. Third question I want to wrestle with this afternoon is how do we battle temptation? How do we battle temptation? If we have a real enemy 
and he's sending us real temptations, and he's trying to undermine our identity in Christ, and he's trying to undermine God's call in our lives. How do we identify it? How do we move forward? Well, first we see that we have to battle with truth. Battle with the truth. Specifically, Jesus battles with the truth of God's word, and even more specifically, do you notice where he battles from? The book of Deuteronomy. So side application, maybe pick that one up. Deuteronomy. That was a joke. Deuteronomy's great, though. (laughs) He battles with God's truth. And here's what we see. The enemy's a liar. That's his primary tactic, is to lie to us. Lying is his native language. But God always tells us the truth. Sometimes we don't like to hear it. Sometimes we'd rather hear something else, but we can depend on God's word as true. We can trust him. We can take him at his word. He tells us the things that sometimes are uncomfortable to hear, but are true. And so we remember the question that the devil asked Jesus to start this conversation. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, Jesus, are you really who God said you are? But what does Jesus do? He doesn't go with that lie even for a moment. He doesn't entertain a lie for even a second. He begins to battle the lie with the truth. Okay, yeah, I am the son of God. Therefore, I don't need to worry about if my father is going to provide for me. I don't need to turn the stone into bread. I know he will. Yes, I am the son of God. Therefore, I don't need to grasp for power and control. I can wait on God's timing because I know he cares for me. I know that he's got good plans for me, even if it involves suffering. And yes, I am the son of God. Therefore, I don't need to do cheap tricks to get attention. I have the approval of my heavenly father, and that is enough for me. Remember when Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free? Very famous line from Jesus. How can the truth set us free? Only if we are in bondage to lies. But the enemy will begin to tempt us, will begin to speak lies to us, and it will become, uh, they will seem reasonable, they will resonate with our experience, we'll think, well, maybe, maybe this is it, maybe this is right. He'll say things like, sit down, you don't have what it takes, people don't respect you, you better prove yourself. Look at everyone else. They seem like they figured it out. What's wrong with you? Your life is never going to change. What you have, what you get. This is, is what it is. And you see how subtle these are. You see how dangerous these lies are. But then we begin to take the uh, treasure trove of truth and promises that we have um, in God's word, and we replace the lies with the truth. 
You see, a lie in our head from the enemy, we, we can't just think it out. We can't be like, stop thinking that. Bad. No, no, no. No, you have to replace it. You replace it with the truth of God's word. And we say, I have everything I need for life and godliness. Thank you very much. God has a good purpose and plan for my life. He is working all things for my good. He will never leave me or forsake me. I am filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in me. As God's son, as God's daughter, I am loved with an everlasting love. And that is what is true. That is what is true. But all day long, we are wrestling with lies. So if we don't begin to apply God's truth to replace the lies, what story are we actually living by? Is it the story of God from his word? Or is it the story of the enemy that he's been trying to manipulate us? So first, we battle with the truth. truth. Second, we battle with trust. And in fact, this is what the whole story is about. This is the primary message of this text. It's not fight temptation with God's word. That's a great application. But the primary application is that Jesus overcame temptation on our behalf. This is what's amazing. When we read this story, we're supposed to be reminded of a couple other temptation stories. And those stories did not go as well. We're supposed to be reminded of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden, where we saw Satan whispering lies about God, whispering lies about God's purposes and his commands, and Adam and Eve fell for it. They failed. We should also be reminded of the story of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. Israel had just been declared as God's beloved son, as they came through the waters of the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness, and there they were tempted. But Israel also failed. They grumbled for bread. They worshiped other gods, and they were constantly putting God to the test. Basically, the th same three temptations that Jesus faced. And so we get to this story, and the readers in the first century would have been like, well, okay, I am, my, my um, antenna, antennas are up. Like, I, I see the connections here. Is Jesus going to succeed where we have failed? Is he going to succeed where Adam and Eve failed, where the people of God failed? What is he going to do? And we see here that indeed, Jesus succeeded. He overcame the temptation where you and I have failed, where God's people have failed. But here's what is even more amazing. Stay with me here. I know this is a little bit heavy, a little bit deep. Stay with me. Jesus not only overcame temptation, he overcame temptation as our representative. On our behalf. So where we disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. He was, in a sense, tempted in our place. And it didn't stop with the scene. He lived the life 
you and I were meant to live in perfect obedience and love to God. He then died on the cross, the death that we were meant to die. He took our, the punishment of our sin on himself, on the cross. Then he rose as our representative, giving new life, new power, new creation power in the world. Jesus, yes, did all those things. He did it beautifully and perfectly as the son of God, but he didn't just do that. He did it for us in our place as our representative so that when we face temptation and we fail, which we do, right? We don't have to say, well, oh, well, I guess it is what it is. I just don't have what it takes to do this whole Jesus thing. No, when we fail, there is abundant mercy because Jesus succeeded for us. So when we put our trust in him, his obedience becomes ours. His righteousness covers us. His life becomes our life. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Not overcome temptation better. That'll crush you but trust Christ who overcame on your behalf, that will free you. He is the one who conquered our enemy in our place. So when we fall again and again and again to the same temptations again and again and again, we look to him who conquered on our behalf and we get up and we go again. I was reminded this week of a story from the Lord of the Rings. A beautiful picture of Sam and Frodo. They're on, obviously, you guys know Lord of the Rings. They're on the, the journey to Mordor, and they're at their lowest point. It's one of the bleakest moments. They are exhausted. They have been tempted and tried beyond what they can bear, and they want to give up, and they're at their very end. And Sam looks at Frodo, and he goes, and he begins to remember all the old stories that they were told as kids and about the heroes of those stories and all the courage that those heroes had. And he looks at Frodo and he says, you think we're in a story like that? He said, do you think songs and tales will be told about us? And of course, as readers, we're like, yes, you most definitely are in the middle of a very important story. But in the midst of their suffering and their trials and in the wilderness, they couldn't even back up enough to see, yes, in fact, you are definitely in the middle of a very important story. And the same is true for us. When we're in a moment of trial, it's very easy for our world to become very small. When we're in a battle, when we're in the wilderness, when we are being tested and tempted, and we just need some help zooming out to be like, actually, I know things are really hard at this very moment, but if you could just see, the angels in heaven are probably there. If you could just see what I see, you are a part of something much, much bigger. Would you hang on? Would you trust in Christ? He overcame. Do not give up. You have God's word. You have Christ himself who is your righteousness. This story is so much bigger. Don't stop. Keep going. And indeed, we are at the very beginning of the story of Jesus. <laughs> and there's so much more 
to come, but he is working out his redemption in the world. He's working out his redemption in you. He has a plan for your life, for your family's life, for this church, for Bay Ridge, for Brooklyn, for this city. We are a small part of it. And when we zoom out, we're going to find so much freedom and joy in saying this temptation is not the final story. We have much more than this. So let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for Christ who overcame for us. God, I pray for humility to know that our enemy is real, and I pray for confidence to know that Jesus overcame on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.